be seated. If you have your Bibles, take them to John chapter number 20. John chapter number 20. You say, Brother Ronnie, that's a little different to where we have been the last few weeks. Well, I was going to uh, preach, continue to preach through Isaiah 53. And when I came to this week, there is an oblique inference about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at that next week. And so we're going to continue through Isaiah 53 next week and finish out that chapter. And next week we'll be talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and where it is found in Isaiah 53. But this morning, I wanted to uh, take the time to directly look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I want to talk to you this morning on this subject the not-so-empty tomb. The not-so-empty tomb. And you'll understand what I'm talking about a little later on. John chapter 20, look at verse number 1. John chapter 20, verse number 1, where we are in the gospel is where, is where Jesus in the previous chapter has died on the cross and has been uh, buried in the tomb. They wound his body, they placed him there before the Sabbath, closing the tomb behind them and so when we pick up reading in verse number 20 the first day of the week comes along that means that three days and three nights have passed just as Jesus had predicted and we're in verse number one John chapter 20 verse number one the first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early when it was yet dark unto the sepulcher and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher and we know not where they had laid him. Peter therefore went forth and the other disciple and came to the sepulcher. And so they ran both together and the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulcher. He stooping down and looking in saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him and went into the sepulcher and seeth the linen cloths lie. And the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also the other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher and saw and believed. I want to talk to you this morning about the not-so-empty tomb. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dearly Father, Lord, we do love you. Thank you for the truth the bedrock principle, the indispensable truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Incontrovertible by history. It is a historical fact. Your son was raised from the grave. And God, this morning as we look into the word of God, the historical account of the resurrection of Jesus, I pray that we would have open hearts, willing to hear what your word has to say. God, I pray that not only the mind would be directed to that, but the Spirit of God would direct our hearts to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that the joy of the truth of a risen Christ would envelop every person in this room 
that, is, that has a saving knowledge of Jesus, that claim Jesus as Lord and Savior, but at the same time those that do not, they have not laid hold of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that this morning would be the first morning that their eyes were opened to the truth of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And that they would cleave to Him as the only Savior that can save them from their sin. Father, we pray You'd work in every heart in the room this morning. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. In March of 2007, the Discovery Channel aired what they uh, called a documentary entitled The Lost Tomb of Jesus. Now in the program, it is claimed that uh, certain researchers and archaeologists had found an ancient burial site in the city of Jerusalem which contained the body of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, although most archaeologists, scientists, and historians paid little or no attention to this find, stating that there was not enough evidence to conclusively support the claim that this was the body of Jesus of Nazareth, to the producers of the documentary, the empty tomb that so many Christians proclaim was not so empty after all. You see, long has have the Christians pointed at the empty tomb as validation of their faith. They look at the empty tomb and they say with all confidence we can trust and believe that Jesus was raised from the grave. But today, this morning, I think I'm going to side with the producers of the lost tomb of Jesus. Now before you get your pitchfork out, hang on a second. I'm not talking about the body of Jesus. No, no. I'm not saying that I believe this is the body of Jesus. No, not at all. I believe with the Apostle Paul that Jesus was bodily, physically raised from the grave. 1 Corinthians 15, 17. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain. I do not have an empty faith. I have a faith built on historical fact and the miraculous work of God in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus did rise from the grave, but an empty tomb? I'm not buying it. Because if you look closely at what we just read, that tomb was not empty. The story is Mary Magdalene came early that morning. She saw the stone rolled away. Remember, she was worried about how they were going to open, open the grave to get to the body of Jesus after the three-day period of the Sabbath or the of the days of the Sabbath and, and but the stone was already rolled away. She went inside, she looked down inside, and there was nobody to be found. She instantly ran to tell Simon Peter and the disciples of the empty tomb, just like our text says, and they came and they looked in. But our text says that the tomb wasn't empty. There were, it may have been vacated, there was not a person in it, but it was not empty. There were things in that tomb. You see, he had left behind items. Articles that attest to the reality of the resurrection. Elements that if we're missing, if these elements were missing, we would have even more reason 
to have speculation as to whether Jesus was actually raised from the grave at all. But no, there were things left behind in the tomb. Things that testify that Jesus was raised from the grave. I would like every one of us to look into this not-so-empty tomb and see three incontrovertible truths. Number one, Jesus died. Number two, Jesus rose. And number three, Jesus saves. I believe these garments, these remaining items left in the tomb reveal those three truths. So I want to start with this. When we look at these articles in the tomb, we first of all see Jesus died. I said that a moment ago. These articles tell us Jesus died. In this passage of Scripture, great emphasis is placed on what is seen in the tomb. Did you catch that? In verse number uh, number 5, And he stooping, looking in, saw the linen cloth lying. And also in verse number 6, Seeing the linen clothes lie. And the napkin around it. There's an emphasis there on what was seen inside of this tomb. Now, the word in verse number 5, saw, in verse number 5, is a word that simply means to recognize an object. Nothing further. John, who outran Peter to the tomb, came to the entrance of the tomb, and he stooped down and looked inside and saw or looked and recognized linen garments, or linen cloths. Now the wording suggests that he did nothing more than identify the object in his sight. So let's, let's parse this out. John comes, looks down in, and recognizes there are linen cloths inside the tomb. He makes no deduction by the wording of our text, makes no deduction about them. He simply saw the object. Now, what did he see? What is being referred to when it talks in verse 5 about these linen cloths lying? You see, first of all, I want you to see the remnants of his death. The remnants of his death. In seeing these linen cloths, John visibly identified what they were. These were the windings of the dead. These immediately remind us that Jesus died. Um, Maybe you may not recognize what's going on here, but in those days in the ancient world, when a body died, they didn't have a lot of embalming fluids. They didn't have a lot of things to try to preserve the body. So So what they would do is they would load the body down. We'll look at this a little bit. They'll load the body down with waxes and fragrance and and things that would stave off the smell of corruption. Then they would take winding cloths, little little four or five inch cloths of linen long, and they would wind the body like a mummy. You know the mummy. Everybody's seen the mummy uh, growing up. You've seen movies where they... Wind them around. How many of you put toilet paper all around yourself and been a, mo- a, a mummy for Halloween? That's what we're talking about. Winding. But these are linen cloths wound all around the body, tightly around the body. So they would hold in all those spices and waxes and fragrances and they would wind the body. So when John looks in, he sees 
those windings. These windings take us and remind us of the death of Jesus. They remind us of Golgotha and the cross on which Jesus died. Just three days prior to the moment of our text, John's master, the Lord Jesus, was arrested. He was hurriedly convicted in the sham of a trial before the religious leaders of of the Jewish people in Jerusalem. He was ramrodded through a Roman death sentence and then hurriedly crucified on a cross. John, John was there. John stood before the cross as the Lamb of God willingly laid out his hands for the coarse nails of the crucifixion. Hanging on that cross in the hot Middle Eastern sun while revilers and mockers pranced around the cross hurling inserts and condemnations. John heard not a word of rebuke come back from the lips of the Lord Jesus. John witnessed the sky being darkened, the ground shaking beneath his feet, and with his the final breath, the cry of the man on the middle cross was, It is finished. He saw the water and the blood come from the spear that was thrust into the side of Jesus, a testimony that he indeed was dead. If these garments say anything at all to us, Right at their sight, right when we recognize them, we know this. It reminds us of the remnants of Jesus' death. Now, the question is, when we think about Jesus dying, the question comes to our mind, why? Why did Jesus die? Many have seen the movie The Passion of Christ and have saw the depiction of the horrors of what happened to Jesus. But, but the prevailing question as you watch this movie, why did such a thing happen to this man? The prophecy of Isaiah, which we've been looking at verse by verse in the previous weeks, and I, and I, I, don't, want to, I don't want to overemphasize, but you can't overemphasize uh, uh, enough this Isaiah 53 passage. Listen to what it says, Isaiah 53, 4-6. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we've all turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of his all. What is Isaiah saying? That the, that the death of the Messiah, the death of the servant of Jehovah was for us, was for our part. Jesus was not a social revolutionary whose life was cut short in its prime. Jesus was not a martyr because he was a, a, a because of a, a for a philosophical cause. No, Jesus was the Son of God dying for the sons of men because of the sin um, in this world. Romans 5 8. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Corinthians 15 3. Christ died for our sins. Why death? Why, why is death the insistence of God? Well, it's because of God's law. The law of God demands that you and I suffer the consequences of sin. 
The thunderings and lightnings of Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments still redound through history, still resonate into our lives. We've all violated His law. We're all liars, thieves, murderers, adulterers, blasphemers, idolaters. We are monsters of iniquity and the law demands death and hell of all law violators. But Christ, as the Apostle Peter said, bear in His body our sins on the cross. Jesus, bear in His body your sin and my sin. In His death, He took the eternal wrath of God that we so justly deserves on Himself. The essence of the good news of the gospel is that the innocent Christ took our guilty place on the cross. Jesus took our judgment in His body on the cross. These grave clothes remind us First of all, Jesus died. He died on the cross bodily, physically gave His life. Second of all, not only do these grave clothes tell us He died, but that secondly, He rose. (laughs) Jesus died. Jesus rose. He rose from the grave. Look at verse number 6 and 7. Now remember the scene now. John, John Beats Peter to the tomb. I think he put that in the text to just rub it in through all eternity that he beat him in a foot race. So uh, he got to the tomb first, but stopped. Peter comes behind and runs down in the tomb. Verse number six, we pick up with Peter there. Then cometh Simon Peter, following him, went into the sepulcher and seeing the linen cloths lie. And the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Notice in 6 and 7 we have the word seeing. Seeth. He seeth these things. The word here is a word that means Peter behold, beheld attentively. So Peter, John comes to the door and he sees and recognizes the cloths, nothing more. Peter rushes in, and he looks upon the same cloths and beholds them intentively. There's the idea of trying to understand what is taking place. The word indicates seeking discernment. Peter not only saw and identified the linen cloths, but he recognized there was something unusual about them. What's unusual about them? They're empty. There's nothing there. The cloths that Jesus was wrapped in upon His death were empty. They were vacated of person. In this previous chapter, in the previous chapter, Joseph of Arimathea had received the body of Jesus from Pilate. Look with me back at 19 and look at verse number 38. This is after Jesus had died, his body being taken down from the cross, verse number 38 in chapter 19. And after this, Joseph Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him leave. And he came therefore and took the body 
of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus, which at this first sight of Jesus by night, and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. Then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen cloths with the spices as the matter of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden and in the garden a new sepulcher where never where it was in was never a man laid and there laid they Jesus therefore because of the Jews preparation day for the sepulcher was nigh at hand. So here we see what's taking place. Joseph Arimathea and Nicodemus these secret disciples Jesus get the body of Jesus and they oversee the winding. They they put the the aloes and the these waxy fragrances all over the body of Jesus and then they begin to wind his body in all these linen cloths over and over and over to wind the body to hold the body together when so that it can be held together when corruption sets in. So Jesus was wound tightly with about 100 pounds of aromatic spices on him. Now Peter realizes that these wrappings were simply an empty shell. The windings were laying flat on the stone with no body within. The indication is that Jesus had not been unwound. That seems like that would be the way. If you were going to take the body of Jesus for some reason, you would unwind the windings and leave them in a pile. But the, the language suggests that the windings were there in the place where they had laid the body of Jesus, but the body was simply gone. The windings were empty. It is as though the body had simply vanished. It was gone. Jesus had risen. He was not there. Notice, first of all, the identity of Christ. The position and the condition of the linen cloths were physical evidence that Jesus had risen from the grave. Now think about this. Long has been the speculation of the scoffers that disciples came by night, somehow snuck past the Roman detail, opened the tomb, went inside and took the body of Jesus and ran away with it. Think about it. If you were going to steal a body and there were Roman guards out front, trained killers, and somehow you were able to sneak in, wouldn't the first thing you do was throw that body over your shoulder and run as fast as you could out of that tomb? But that is not what happened. They... They would have had to taken hours to unwind Jesus' body, hours to rewind that body in that place uh, on the tomb to make it look like there was some sort of resurrection. I tell you, it baffles, it baffles knowledge to think that these grave robbers would do such a thing. It was not the work of grave robbers overcoming a Roman garrison, rolling back an enormous stone, hurriedly unwinding the body of Jesus, then taking hours to painstakingly piece the windings back together. No. 
this was something altogether different. Jesus was alive. And this resurrection identified Jesus as who he claimed to be, the Son of God. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is an essential matter, even not just New Testament, but Old Testament as well. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a matter of depiction in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament story, the book of Exodus, how that there is, a, or maybe in Numbers, how that uh, there was a dispute over who would be the high priest of Israel at this time. Moses took rods from every person within the tribe, one particular person that they wanted to appoint as the, as the high priest, even though God had already specified that Aaron would be the high priest. No, we got to put it into a vote. Sounds like a church. You know? even though We're going to vote on what God said. But anyway, and so here we have all these sticks that were given in as an indication of who would be the high priest. They took the sticks, put them in a box. After a certain amount of time, of prayer and seeking God, they opened the box. There was only one stick that had not only come back to life, not only had bloomed and had had new growth on it, but actually produced fruit. It was the rod of Aaron. It was the testimony from death to life of God's high priest. The same as can be said of Jesus. In like fashion, Jesus arose alive from the grave, attesting to the fact that he is the great high priest of God and the mediator between God and man. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a matter of of prediction, not only depiction, but prediction. Listen to Psalm 16, 9-10. Therefore my heart is glad, David writes this, therefore my heart is glad and and my glory rejoiceth My flesh also shall rest in hope, for thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. This is a direct prophecy concerning the resurrection of Jesus. You say, Brother Roddy, how do you know? How do you know this is a direct reference uh, to Jesus' resurrection? Well, because Peter used it that way. The Apostle Peter himself quoted this verse on the day of Pentecost as his proof text that Jesus was raised from the grave. He said basically this, you know what David said, that he would not let his body see corruption, but you know also that David and his bones have seen corruption, and they're right down the road. You know where he's buried. And so therefore, that text has to do with Jesus being raised from the grave. It's the proof of G- the proof of the, the prediction of Jesus' resurrection. The resurrection is God's stamp of approval on him. The Bible said in Romans 1-4 that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. The word declared means to mark out, to separate, to set aside. The resurrection of Jesus Christ clearly identified him as God's son, as the Messiah of the Old Testament. You see, these these grave clothes being empty, as Peter recognizes, there's the outline. His body was there, but it's not anymore. He's been risen from the dead. It is a recognition of who Christ is. 
Notice also not on the identity of Christ, but the authority of Christ. You know, there's some circles, some Christian circles that have caved in on the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. They say, well, it really doesn't matter if Jesus was raised from the grave. It has no impact on our faith. We have hope, uh, whether it was a spiritual resurrection or a bodily resurrection. But no, everything in the Word of God says that the Christian faith rises and falls on the resurrection of Jesus. Listen to what 1 Corinthians 15, 7 says. Paul puts it very clearly. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, and ye are yet in your sins. That's basically what he said. He said, we're a bunch of fools gathering this morning if Jesus was not raised from the grave. Why? Because Jesus' authority over death was forever settled on that first Easter morning. Now I, want, I want to let you know something. I have heard a lot of preaching in my day. And any of you have been raised in church all your life, you've heard a lot of preaching in your day. And I have heard some doozies about what happened in those three days that Jesus was, was in the grave. I've heard preachers say, oh, the, Jesus got the devil by the neck, put him in a headlock, gave him a black eye, and wrestled, put his, head, put his foot on his neck, and got the keys of death. It was a wrestling match that went on in that tomb in those three days. I don't know about that. There's not a bit of scripture to back up something uh, to that uh, effect. It sounds a little bit more like lubricating scripture to say, uh, to paint a picture that you want to paint, but the truth be known, we know very little of what happened in that time Jesus was in the tomb. The Apostles' Creed uh, uh, alludes to the fact that Jesus descended into hell. There are certain passages of Scripture that talk about Jesus preaching to, uh, captivity captive, preaching to the captive in captivity. There, there are certain allusions to what might be taking place, but the truth be known, Solid and explicitly, we don't know what happened in those three days. I don't know exactly what happened in that tomb. But I do know this, that on that third day, Jesus arose victor over death, hell, and the grave. Revelation 1.18, Jesus said, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And, and have the keys of death and hell. I don't know if there's a wrestling match or any kind of putting, putting foot on, on Satan's neck, but I do know that he emerged with the keys, the authority of death and hell. Jesus is supreme in authority of the universe, having power over death, hell, and the grave. Death does, does death haunt, haunt your nights? Does death dog your heels during the day? Well, I would like to introduce to you the one that has fully defeated death and reigns forevermore. It is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ defeated death. That's why His disciples were absolutely fearless when they realized they served a risen Savior. What are you going to threaten them with? Death has no power over them. Jesus has all power over death, hell, and the grave. Jesus died. 
These grave clothes and what was left in that tomb reminds us that Jesus died, that Jesus rose, and finally, that Jesus saves. That Jesus saves. Look with me at verse 7. And the napkin that was about his, meaning Jesus' head, was not lying with the linen cloths, but wrapped together in a place by itself. That word napkin here, you know, we have an idea of a napkin. We have it at our dinner or something. We take a napkin to wipe our mouths. But that's not exactly what we're talking about here. This word is a word, uh, it's called a sudarum. Sudarum, and it basically means a sweat rag. Maybe you might think of it as a, a dish towel. It's a larger cloth that is used to wipe sweat from the brow. It was also used as a covering for the face of the dead. It would bind up the face of the corpse of a body. Jesus' body was wrapped in the linen cloths, and then uh, at the end, a sudarnum or a burial face cloth was placed over his head. But this item wasn't laying with the cloths, but was in a particular place. It was moved. The author John points it out that the napkin was about his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but wrapped together in a place by itself. It was intentionally laid aside. Matter of fact, the word wrapped here indicates that the napkin was not folded but rolled up. You know how you, know how you roll something up into a, a cylinder? The, this napkin was rolled up and then it was, it was placed somewhere else. It, there is seemingly no rush, no hurry. Again, it has been long suspected that Jesus' body was stolen by his disciples. So you're telling me that they took the time to get past the Roman guard, open the stone, somehow get past them, open the stone. Roman guards that they were afraid of. Remember when Jesus was arrested, they fled for their lives. They didn't even come to the crucifixion. They, they got past the Roman guards. They lifted this heavy stone. They went inside. They unwound the body. Of, they took the napkin off. Laid it aside, unwound the body of Jesus, placed those windings in such a way as though he is laying there and just simply passed through them, then took the, then took the time, pressure's on, clock is ticking, got Roman guards are going to be waking up soon, and rolled it up and set it in a specific location. No, that is not it at all. All these elements come together to testify of the miracle of the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus rose from within the, the linen cloths through them. However, that takes place. Remember, remember in the upper room? The room was locked just, just moments after this. The room was locked in the upper room. The disciples together and said that Jesus came through the walls. He was in the midst with them. Jesus passed through these windings bodily, physically. How does the physics work? I have no idea. He passes through these windings and then takes that face, that face wrapping and winds it up and sets it aside. 
when we look at this in verse number 7, I want us to see an expression of faith. Or verse number 8. Look at the expression of faith. Verse number 8. Then went in also the other disciple, which came to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. Now, remember, it's always been seeing, seeth, he seeth this, he saw that. There is another word used for sight here. This word means to properly see and to know. At first, John merely looked and saw grave clothes and identified them as the grave cloths. But in verse number 8, it says that he understood, that he saw, he understood, he perceived. There is a book in the uh, Christian library of, of books. If you want to find a good one, I highly recommend it. It's called Aha. It's the Aha moment. It's matter of fact, the, the book's about the prodigal son. It's an amazing book. I really, really love the book. The author's really good. But he's got this book, and he, he, he calls it Aha, because in studying the prodigal son, he came to an Aha moment. Have you ever had an Aha moment? You know, you're looking at something, all of a sudden you, oh, I understand what's, I understand what's going on. Here, John is having just that. He is having an aha moment. This is not only seeing with the eyes, it is seeing with the heart, the mind, and the will. Then our text says, look at what he says. It said, he saw and believed. There is an expression of faith. This is the whole point, the whole endeavor of the Gospel of John. Look in that same chapter and look at verse number 31. John said, These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through His name. You know, belief plays an essential role in the New Testament. John 3.16, that Sunday school simple verse for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. John also says in his first chapter in verse 12, But as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. Romans 10, 9 and 10, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart, that God hath raised him from the dead, the very subject of our discourse this morning, that God has belief in the resurrection of Jesus, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Acts 16, verse number 31, the apostle Paul, when he was in prison, and the walls were shaken, and the guard comes in and finds them alive and still in the prison, and he asks, what must I do to be saved? Listen to what Paul said. Believe. On the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. My question this Easter Sunday morning is have you believed? Have you put your faith and trust in it? Belief is more than a mental assent to the belief that there is an historical Jesus that existed, that he died on a cross. It is yielding our life to the truth that Jesus in his death 
died for our sins. In His resurrection, He has proclaimed the acceptable sacrifice for our sins. You yield to that truth? It is a belief that He is Lord of all and that all my life is to be given in, to Him in response to His life being given for me. Have you believed on Jesus? Have you put your faith and trust in Him? An expression of faith, an invitation of life. Look back with me at John 20 and verse number 31 again. These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through His name. Believing, having life. To believe is to have life. You see, our problem in our natural state is that we have no life. We have no life. Because of our sin and our rebellion against God, we are condemned to death. Although we have a beating heart, if there are any corpses in this room that don't have a beating heart, I'd like for you to be escorted out. But all of us have. Brother Ronnie, how can you say that I am dead when my heart's beating? I know I'm very much alive. You pinch me, I'm going to react. How can you say that I'm dead? Well, it's a lot like, you know, in the... I'm sure you've seen The Green Mile or other movies about, about a person going to execution. Do you remember how they do it? And they, they bring him out of the cell. He's going to the electric chair. And the men around him say, dead man walking. Well, he's not dead. He's very much alive. His heart's beating out of his chest unusually fast. He's alive. But the direction that he's going, in his ultimate destiny, he's as good as dead. He's a dead man walking. Every person outside of Jesus Christ that has not embraced the gospel, that has not yielded their all to Him, embraced His death, burial, and resurrection for their sin, is a dead man walking. You're heading to judgment. It may happen tomorrow. It may happen five years from now. It may happen a lifetime away. But one way or another, every day you live and put your feet on the floor, you're a dead man walking. You're heading to a judgment that you cannot endure. An eternal death, an eternal death in a place of fire and brimstone, a place that Jesus talked about time and time again, a place called hell. But a, the Son of God died for the sons of men. And in doing so, a way of salvation is opened up, a way to come to God through Jesus Christ, God's Son. Listen to Romans 5, 9 and 10. Much more then, being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Jesus is alive today so that He can save. Ultimately, it's for God's glory and His eternal purposes. But the byproduct of that is that you and I can be assured of salvation. Why? Because Jesus died, He was raised, and He saves. Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. This life, this eternal life, is accessed. This forgiveness of sin is only given when we 
believe. Inherent in belief is repentance. Repentance is a change of mind. I have a, I'm going one direction. I change my mind to go another direction. The gospel is to repent and believe. To change direction. To change my mind and put my faith and trust in Jesus. To believe in one thing is to forsake another. To turn from living life of sin and self and to turn to Jesus, trusting Him for the forgiveness of sin. On March the 20th, 1994, over 29 years ago, next year will be my 30th anniversary, my 30th birthday in Jesus. As a 21-year-old college student, driving down I-75 after leaving a Sunday night service. I don't even know what the preacher preached. God had been dealing with my heart so long, it didn't matter what he preached. God was all in that car. He was, he was dealing with my sins, showing me my heart, showing me my destiny of judgment. And in that car, we were driving to Six Flags the other day, and I didn't say anything, but I come near that exit. Right there at Barrett, you know where Barrett Parkway is? You know when you go to Atlanta, you take a 75, Barrett Parkway, the big mall over there? Right in that dip. You know there should be an old go-kart track over there on the left. Right around that dip. I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I called upon the name of the Lord. And God changed me. I, went in, I got in that car one person in Chattanooga. I got out of that car a different person in the, at the Southern Tech campus. I was a different person. God changed me. He saved me. I believed on Jesus. I repented. I didn't know what it all meant. I didn't know the implications it would have on my life in the future. I just know that I called upon the name of the Lord. And He changed me, forgave me of my sins. I was given new life, a new heart, a new desire. I was never the same. He died, he rose, and he saves. The grave clothes may have reminded, remained behind an empty shell. The napkin may have been rolled up and left conspicuously to be found in the garden tomb. But one thing is for sure. Jesus was not there. He was bodily, physically, miraculously raised from the grave never to die again. And because of this resurrection, Jesus freely offers the same everlasting life to all who believe on Him. A young invalid poet in the 19th century, Annie, Flynn, Annie Johnson Flynn penned this glorious truth when she wrote this. How vain is our faith if the Christ be not risen? How dark is the tomb if the Lord is still there? How heavy our burden of grief and transgression? How deep our despair? Oh, justified faith in a finished salvation. Oh, sure resurrection that comforts our woes. Oh, glorious light in the valley of shadow. All because Jesus, Jesus Arose. There is hope in life. There is hope of eternal life in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A finished salvation is offered to you today for a risen, from a risen Lord. A risen Lord that one day will come in power, in judgment, and in great glory. But today, today's not that day. Today is a day where He freely offers everlasting life to all that will believe upon His name. Now is your time to respond to the truth. Now is the time to respond to the truth revealed. Seeing the resurrection truth, perceiving its significance, 
Will you not believe on Jesus to surrender your life to the will of Jesus? Receive Him. Embrace Him today. Embrace the cross. Embrace the tomb. As for you, He gave His life. You yield your life to Him. Let's all stand to our feet, every head bowed, every eye closed. If you're here today, you don't know the Lord Jesus, I beg you, come. If you don't want to come down to this altar, I, I, I somewhat can understand that. But if you'll call upon the name of the Lord, if you'll cry out to Him, and believe on Him as Savior, He'll save you as much back there as He will down here. If He can save me driving in a car 65 miles an hour, He can save you in that pew, in that seat. Come to Jesus. Believe upon Him, you that are saved. Oh, this is why we rejoice. This is why we wake up this morning with smiles on our face. He's alive. He's alive forevermore. He loves His own. He will carry us unto Him one day. When I draw my last breath, I will open my face in glory and behold His glorious face. If you're here today without the Lord Jesus, come and know Him. Believe upon Him. If you do know Him, rededicate. Yet yield your life completely and fully to Him once again. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love You. I thank You for the Lord Jesus. I thank You for the resurrection, the truth of these, of these garments. Even these garments that were left us behind, they testify to the reality of the resurrected Christ. They show us full truth that He is indeed risen and forever reigns in heaven above and one day is coming for His own. God, take this truth, seal it to our hearts. Help us to, by Your Spirit to obey the Gospel. That's the, that's the declaration of Scripture. Those that are condemned would not obey the Gospel. Those that have eternal life are those that obey the Gospel. God, help us to obey the Gospel, to repent and believe, to embrace and trust Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Father, we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. Page number 188. He lives. He lives a fitting song for these uh, truths about the resurrected Christ. He lives. Page number 188. You respond as God has dealt with your heart.